orchestra. I like that. Hadn't heard it before, but I liked it. Evelyn, thank you. I, I'm concerned we may have to take up another offering, however. I was watching while you were singing. Everyone was mesmerized, and I don't think anyone was giving, so we might have to go back and do that all again. Well, life is a scrapbook of memories, some good, some not so much. Most of our memories probably revolve around our families. I know that I have many wonderful memories concerning my family. Stephanie, as a little girl, normally had a tendency to be prone to accidents. She was playing softball, the ball bounced up, hit her in the face, cracked her face. She fell off a curb, broke her leg. Anytime she went out, we didn't know what was going to happen while she was gone. But I always admired her courage and commitment. Steph went to Baylor, and it was her first year. She had a religion professor who didn't exactly interpret the Bible the way that I did. He questioned some of the miracles and so forth. Steph had gone over to check her grades, and her professor saw her and said, uh, Stephanie, this year, did you hear anything, anything troubled you that I said? And she said, you know, Dr. Davis, at the beginning of the year, you said there are some things in life you take with a grain of salt. He said, I remember that. She said, well, you said some things I took with a grain of salt. <laughs> so I always appreciated that. And then there's Eric. I have a lot of memories about him as well. He always made me laugh. Eric is, has a wonderful sense of humor. And now he's become a, a wonderful and fantastic leader at Village Church. And I'm very proud of him and admire him greatly. Well, today we continue looking at the miracles of Jesus. And we have come to Jairus' daughter and we see a father's concern. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse number 21. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. And he went off with him, and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Now turn to verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. 
And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithakum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely surrounded, astonished. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Every parent here can identify with this girl's father. He was concerned about his girl. He came to Jesus saying, Jesus, I have a daughter who is at the point of death. According to Mark, she was 12 years old. According to Luke, she was his only daughter. But as we look at the story, here is a man who has a little girl who is at the point of death. And so he came to Jesus for help. Oftentimes it is our children who drive us to Jesus in a deeper relationship. The needs of our children. That was certainly true with me. The reason I went to church was because I thought Stephanie needed to be in church. Many times it is our children who drive us to Jesus because of their needs. You'll notice there in verse number 23, the Bible says that he entreated him earnestly. Vine says the word earnestly carries the idea that of not relaxing in effort. Here is a father whose heart is concerned for his daughter and he earnestly entreated Jesus. You know when our children have needs, it's not a casual prayer, is it? When our children have serious needs, we don't shoot up a prayer on their behalf, but we earnestly pray, God, do something. God, intervene. And that is this father. As he sees the need of his daughter, who is near death, he comes to Jesus and earnestly makes his request. He is beseeching him, Jesus, do something. And I also admire his faith there in verse number 23, where he said, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. He had faith in Jesus. So here is a girl who is about to die. The father's heart is breaking he comes to Jesus and earnestly begins to pray because he believes that Jesus can meet her need. I love the Lord's response in verse number 24. He went off with him. Silence, he didn't say a word. He just went off with him. When he came to Jesus, Jesus, my little girl, is at the point of death. Please come and touch her that she may be well, that she may live. And he went off with him. Didn't say anything. Didn't comfort him. He swung into action to meet the needs of this father's girl. Well, there was a hopeless conclusion reached in verse number 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. 
You know, it's not unusual for one circumstances to end without hope. And that was true with Jairus' daughter. They came and said, Jairus, you, your daughter died. There's no hope now. She is dead. There's nothing else that can be done. She died. Same thing was true with Lazarus. And when he died and his sisters Mary and Martha said to the Lord, Jesus, had you been here, my brother would not have died. But he died. So there is a, there's a time, there's a sense whenever we reach a point of hopelessness, and that is especially true in the death of our loved ones. They died, so there is a sense of hopelessness. I remember as a young man, I received a call that my father had had a heart attack and was in the hospital. I got in my car and drove as rapidly as I could to the hospital. But when I got there, the nurse met me and said, I'm sorry, but your dad expired. That when there is a death of our loved ones, there is that sense of despair, that sense of hopelessness. Your daughter died. Sickness can leave us without hope. Sometimes a person can be ill to the point that there seems to be no hope. We saw that when we saw the man at the pool of Bethesda. He had been there for 38 years waiting to get into the water that he might be healed. And Jesus came by and said to him, Sir, would you, would you like to be made well? And the man said to Jesus, I, I have no one to put me into the pool while the water is stirred up. I have no hope. For 38 years I have been here. I've been ill. I've been sick. For 38 years I have been wishing to get in the pool that I might be made well, but I don't have anyone to put me into the pool. When I'm trying to get in, someone else gets in first. There is no hope. Sometimes it's sickness. The doctor says that there's no hope. And we are in a position of hopelessness, of despair. It can also be true spiritually, that there is a spiritual condition and we feel that there is no hope. We saw that as we looked at the demoniac of Gadara. A man possessed by demons. The townspeople did what they knew to do, but they couldn't help him. The Bible says that he lived in the cemetery, that he, he roamed around the cemetery. There was no hope for him. Spiritually, there was just no hope. The disciples believed that there was no hope for Saul, who became the apostle Paul, that he was beyond salvation. And after Paul had the Damascus Road experience and he came to know the Lord, the Bible says in Acts 9, 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. I don't blame them. Paul had been persecuting the, the church. He had been gathering up believers and hauling them off to prison. And the church had come to the conclusion that there's no hope for this man. Even though Jesus had died for his salvation, there's no hope for this man. You and I have read the stories we've known of people who have committed heinous crimes and we've concluded there's no hope for that person. That person can't be saved. You see, there, there are those times in life when it, it just seems hopeless. Sometimes it's because of a death. 
Sometimes it's because of illness. Sometimes it's because of sin, hopelessness. And so then there's the resolve in verse 35, your daughter's died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? So we conclude, we have situations in life, we conclude there is no hope, and then why trouble the teacher anymore? Just your daughter has died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother Jesus anymore because there's nothing that can be done. It's hopeless. The doctor says that there is no hope, and so we give up. It's hopeless. My condition is hopeless. I, I know many people as well as you. They're dealing with cancer. They're dealing with some disease. And the doctor has told them that there is no hope. There's nothing else that can be done. And humanly speaking, I'm sure that that's true. But the result is, is that we despair. We lose all hope. My guess is this morning there are some of you in your marriage just, just hanging on by thread. And maybe you've concluded that there is no hope. There's nothing else that can be done. Or perhaps you have a child that is re rebellious and belligerent. You've done what you know to do. You've prayed for them, but now you've come to the conclusion that there's no hope. There's nothing else I can do. Or there's someone you know, someone you love. You've witnessed to them. You've prayed for them, but they've never trusted the Lord. And you've concluded that there is no hope for them. There's nothing else that can be done. Why trouble the teacher anymore? There's nothing that can be done. But then there's an important conjunction in verse number 36. But Jesus. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus. Those are probably the two most encouraging words in Scripture to me. Everyone else can assess the situation. Everyone else can say it is hopeless, but Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's my condition without Christ. Not feeling poorly, you were dead. That was our condition without Jesus, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 1.4, but God being rich in mercy. I was dead in trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy. I'd gotten a call from Governor McNair, before he passed away, wanted me to come and see him. And so I drove down to see him. I went in, he was sitting there. and I said, Governor, what can I do for you? He looked at me and said, but God, how could I be where I have been but God? How could I have had the life I've enjoyed but God? When the world says there is no hope but God. He says we don't have to be afraid. In verse number 36, Jesus overhearing what was being spoken said to the synagogue official, do not, believe, do not be afraid any longer, only 
believe. Folks, did you know that because of God, we don't even have to be afraid of death? When the apostle Paul was facing death, he said, the time of my departure is at hand. The word departure means moving from one place to another. He said, I'm leaving this life. I'm going to another. You don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid of God's will for your life. I know that some of you are. If I really sell out to the Lord, you, there's no telling what he's going to want me to do. And you're, you're scared of God's will for your life. When the angel came to Mary and said, Mary, you're going to have a baby, you're pregnant. And then he says, do not be afraid, Mary. My friend, you don't have to be fearful of God's will for your life. I, I don't know what God's will is for your life. Maybe it's something that is totally frightening to you, but you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be fearful of God's will. Even when we face danger, we don't have to be fearful. Paul was in a ship. There was a storm that was raging. The ship was about to crash on the shore. The angel appeared to him and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. We live in a time when there is um, a lot of fear, isn't there? I like the song because it's speaking about the peace of the Lord and the Lord's provision. See, most of us have lived a life where Christianity has been in favor, people have embraced it, it has been accepted and so forth. And yet today it bothers us because it is under attack here in this country. I mean, when I was growing up, the Gideons would come to the school and give us Bibles for memorizing verses and those things. That's that's the, the world I grew up in. And yet sometimes we look at the world in which we live today and it is frightening to us. We are fearful of it. But we need not. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 6 says, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? But God. And so Jesus said only believe. But this encouragement calls one to action. And in our text, there are two groups present. There are the followers of facts in verse number 38. And they came to the house of the synagogue official and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. In these circumstances, there is no hope. And the Bible says that Jesus came and he beheld them, which means that he stood there for several moments looking just observing. So Jesus came to the home where the daughter had passed away and he stood there watching the people for a few moments, just watching the people. The Bible says there was a commotion. The word means to clamor, to frighten. The people were frightened. See, without Jesus, death is fearful. So the Bible says that they began to clamor. They were frightened. It says there was weeping and wailing. They were in a state of despair. There was no hope. They were weeping and wailing. There's no hope. Then they were laughing. Verse number 39. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. 
They began laughing at him. They believed what they saw and they laughed at what he said. This is absurd. Here's a girl, she's dead. And you're telling me that she's not? They believed what they saw and they laughed at what he said. So there were the followers of fact. This is a fact. She's dead. It's a fact. There's nothing else can be done. It's a fact. And they believed in the fact that they saw. But then there were the followers of faith who had a different interpretation. Verse number 37. And he allowed no one to follow with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Oh, these believed. Because they had seen the power of the Lord before. They had, they had seen the lame walk. They had seen the blind see. They had seen the dead come forth from the grave. They believed. They believed. They had seen what God could do. Don't you love to be around people like that? I mean, whenever I'm about to despair, whenever I've about given up hope, and then you get around someone who has seen the miracle of God, they've seen the power of God, they've seen the love of God, and they believe because they've seen it. These believed. They had seen what the Lord could do. And then there were those who wanted to believe. In verse number 40b, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. The disciples had seen the power of the Lord and they believed and then you had a mother and dad who wanted to believe. Wouldn't you? Jesus said she is not dead. She's just asleep. They wanted to believe that. He put everybody else out. Those who didn't believe, those who didn't want to believe, he put them out. But those who believed and those who wanted to believe, he took in the room with him. There is an important conjunction, but Jesus, and then an astonishing consequence, verse number 41. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithakum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, arise. I say to you. I say to you. No one else could have said that and expected it to be fulfilled. Just Jesus. I say to you, Arise. Well, that's going to take a miracle. Here's someone who's dead. I say to you, arise. And the interesting thing to me about the word arise that is used there is that is the word that a mother would have used when she awakens her child in the morning. I say to you, arise. There was a miracle, verse number 42, and immediately the girl rose and began to walk. Immediately responsive to his word, Jesus says to this girl who is dead, I say to you, arise, and immediately she arose. She was made alive and she walked. The word walk that is used there is imperfect, which means she continued to walk. She began to walk, she continued to walk. That is a picture of what our life is to be like in Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus gives us spiritual life and then he expects us to walk. 
in faith. Now that's a picture of Lazarus when he was made alive in the tomb. Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth bound in grave clothes. And Jesus said, unbind him, let him loose. Because we are not supposed to live as if we're dead. Unbind him. Let him loose. She began to walk. Jesus said, arise. And she was made alive and began to walk and continued to walk. They were astonished. Verse number 42. And immediately the girl arose and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And the word that is used there means to put out of wits, bewildered. You know, miracles are astonishing. But they're not the norm. If they were, they wouldn't be miracles. The miracle of the resurrection was astonishing. After Jesus rose from the grave, two of the disciples were on the road to Emmaus. Jesus came up beside them and he asked them the question, what are you all talking about? And they said, well, some women among us amazed us when they told us that they went to the cemetery and Jesus was not there. We were amazed. Some women amazed us. They told us that he was alive. Miracles of healing are astonishing. In Mark chapter 7 verse 37, And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. They were astonished by it. Miracles, the idea of miracles has become cheapened today. I've wondered, I've been by those tents before and they say miracle service Thursday at 7 o'clock. What if I need a miracle it's Wednesday at 5? It's different when Jesus performs a miracle because it's a real miracle. And the Bible says that they were astonished by it. When Peter was released from prison, it was amazing. He had been in prison. The church had gathered to pray for him. And they prayed for his release and then he's knocking on the door. And the Bible says, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. They were amazed that he was there, but the Lord had released him. Paul's conversion was amazing. The Bible says that he was saved and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed. It is amazing when the Lord saves someone. There are some people who are saved out of sin and degradation and so forth. And we are astounded by that. We're amazed by that and that's wonderful. Some people are saved out of sin. I was saved from sin. My testimony is very boring. I was saved as a child. But I'm so grateful. I'm, I'm glad that I didn't have to go through a lot of things before I would listen to the Lord in desperation. But it was the normal thing for me to do because my parents were Christian. And they brought me up that way. Let me conclude. Without Jesus, we have no hope. Physically, the doctor says there's no hope. And without Jesus, that's probably so. Maybe your marriage is in a condition where there seems to be no hope. That may be so. Without Jesus, that could be so. 
Maybe you're at a point where you say, well, you know, I am so bad that I could never be forgiven. God can never love me. But I want you to hear this word from Jesus, verse 36. Jesus, overhearing what was spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Jesus is a miracle worker. Now you respond to Jesus. In fact, or in faith. If you respond in faith, he will change your life. But Jesus, I care not what went before it in your life, but Jesus can change your life if you let him. Father, I thank you for the grace that is extended to us through Jesus. And I pray, Father, for those who are desperate today. Just like that father who came to you so many years ago. Lord, my daughter's at the point of death. Please help. I pray for those who are at that point of desperation that today they would trust you. Father, for those who need to make other commitments that they would do so this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you're without Christ, I invite you to trust Him. If you're looking for a church home, my doors are open. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.